Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. In this episode, I talked to Will Fishbach, a former Army JAG and trial attorney and equity shareholder at Tiffany and Bosco in Phoenix, Arizona. If you get a chance to look at his LinkedIn profile, you'll see he has a pretty diverse practice portfolio. But as I'm recording this introduction, it's 3.36 in the morning. I'm getting ready to leave for the week, which is why I have to get this done right now. This is going to be a little bit of a different podcast because Will does a lot of looking back at his Army career and goes into great detail some of the things he did. And yeah, I could have cut these out, but as I listened to it the second time and put it together, I realized that one, Will is kind of like really reflecting on his career for the first time. And also because I thought it sets up and drives sort of his approach to private practice where he just is willing to do everything. And so I left it be. And as I tell my guests, you have great flexibility as far as where you take this conversation. And so to cut out a lot of what Will had say, I thought would be disingenuous to the guidance that I give my guests because I'm so appreciative of them coming on to the show. So without further ado, Will Fishbach. So Will, good to see you again. Good morning, sir. Good to see you. So, Will, eight years in the Army and 15 years in private practice, that's pretty much your career in a nutshell, though the particulars of that career, I'm sure, are much more interesting. So, former Army JAG, I'm guessing you're Arizona born and bred as a Arizona State University political science uh, major before going off to Tulane for your MBA and your Juris Doctor. Very close. Southern California born and bred and Let's just say that I was not exactly an academic superstar in high school, and I, I didn't have a lot of options for college. But back then, and this is uh, when I'm applying to college, it's the late '80s. And but I got into Arizona State, and I and I got into Mizzou. Both schools back then would kind of take just about anybody. Now today, Arizona State, some of their schools, like the the business school and the law school, are all top twenty schools, and and, it, and it's an incredible, highly respected institution. But yeah, back back then it was a state school. They were taking all comers. So I grew up in in urban Los Angeles, inner city Los Angeles, and came out here to to Arizona State. And I really just fell in love with the desert, the, the topography. And to me, you know, the desert is kind of a very special place because I feel like there have been so many times in my life where most of my growth as a human being in, in terms of kind of overcoming obstacles and challenges happened in the desert, be it the, the deserts of Arizona, the, the deserts of Iraq, or the deserts of Afghanistan or Uzbekistan. Um, the desert's a special place for me. And Phoenix in particular, but many people don't know this, but the, the Phoenix is called Phoenix. It's based on the, the mythological bird. The, the, the Phoenix is the bird that, you know, that is, is risen from its own ashes. And where Phoenix gets that name is there used to be an ancient civilization here in what is now kind of southern or central and southern Arizona called the Hohokams. 
a, a lot of those ancient civilizations like the, the Incas and the Aztecs, they, they, they kind of waned and disappeared and nobody knows why, but there's still bits and pieces of their, their civilization here. For example, the canal system here in Phoenix that was built by SRP, that's the Salt River Project, which is basically a, a, all, all the basin states have a similar outfit. They're all built on the old Hohokam canals. The Hohokams built canals and they worked. Phoenix is kind of, it's risen from the ashes of the old ancient Hohokam civilization. And so where a lot of people view the desert as a place that's hostile to life, I view the desert as a place to kind of be be reborn in, in many respects. Yeah. And I know I feel like I was reborn as a human being when I went to college. And, and again, you know, during my time overseas, because you just go through so much, you learn so much, and you, you emerge on the other side of those those challenges a better person. So you go to Arizona State. Is that sort of where you're reborn academically and then off to law school? In many respects, yeah. I mean, I kind of, you know, I kind of got it together academically in, in college because I realized that the, the good news is by getting away from home and I think getting away from some bad influences, I, I was able to kind of get a fresh start. And I realized that, you know, I, I kind of had to remake myself. The kid that grew up in Los Angeles was not going to be successful unless he changed his ways. And so, yeah, I, I, in many respects, I kind of remade myself in college and academics became a huge part of my life. And I'm not going to say I was a 4.0 all the time. I wasn't because I believe in, in, in having balance in all things. But I learned to understand the importance of academics, the importance of how you present yourself, the importance of building relationships with people. All those things really kind of became apparent to me in college the way they just simply had not in high school. So why Tulane for law school? <laughs> well, at the time, you know, I'd considered Arizona State or, or even the University of Arizona. But back then, their law schools weren't that great. I think Arizona State's law school back then was maybe in the top 80, if you were lucky. I think the University of Arizona maybe top 50. I will tell you today, Arizona State's law school is easily a top 25. But Tulane back then was a top 25 school. But more importantly, I had kind of a wanderlust that I, I needed to satisfy. And to me, the idea of going to New Orleans and living there was just so kind of off the wall. I just had to do it. I mean, there's, <laughs> there is no place in the United States like New Orleans. And I, I will always have a deep love for that, that city because it's just there's nothing like it. I loved my time there. I got an MBA there as well as my JD, so it was four years total. You know, it's not where I would necessarily choose to put down down roots, but the, the culture there, just the, the food and the music and the architecture and just the that, that odd amalgam of Spanish and French and American culture, it, it's just a really, it really is a magical city. And I, and I, and I always love going back. It's, it's always fun to, to, to visit again. And I have to say, looking at your LinkedIn profile, obviously your maybe not academics right term, but hearing you talk, it's more your quest for knowledge, tackling two degrees there, that you ended up as a managing editor of the Tulane Law Review. Not not too shabby there, counselor. I was fortunate. I got on there by virtue of my grades. And I am adamantly convinced that law schools do a very bad job of preparing law students to become lawyers. And part of that is because I'm not convinced and again, for any law professors who are listening, I'm, I'm not trying to you know paint with a broad brush here, but a lot of the folks that are law school professors are, well, they probably weren't that great as lawyers, which is why they're in academics now. Now, there's obviously adjunct professors who are them, they have active practices, and I think they're great. But one of the first things you learn on Law Review 
is what lousy writers the professors were. I mean, everything that you learned in legal research and writing, every, every rule that you're supposed to follow in terms of being concise and having the tight analysis, the professors just had no concept of it. <laughs> um, so at the end of the day, it almost was kind of like, almost like a bait and switch. It, when you think about it, law review is kind of a job that if you were to sell it for what it is, which is, hey, we want you to basically edit and rewrite a bunch of poorly written articles by your professors, nobody would volunteer to do that. But if you couch it as an honor, like, oh, you're a law review, <laughs> then people are, are are lining up to do it. So I, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot about good writing. I mean, you learn a lot about good writing by seeing bad writing. That's funny you should say that because at NDU for the last two years, I would have to grade papers. And I, you know, I'm not a teacher. I, I I haven't done this, but I said the same thing. I said, you you don't know a good paper until you you've graded and read a bad paper. And the vice versa is true. You don't know a bad paper until you've read a good paper. I knew that I always wanted to make my way back to Arizona, though. Even with the Army, when, when I pretty much figured that out fairly early on, that I wanted to be a JAG in at least one of the branches. But as you know, the JAG Corps is not particularly concerned where you're you're licensed at, so long as it's within the United States. So I, I, I was sure to sit for the Arizona Bar, because I always knew that I'd make my way back here someday. It took me longer than I thought. There was a war, and then another war, <laughs> and that, that kind of uh, delayed things. But but yeah, I you know even back when I'm there in New Orleans, and kind of looking at, at the various uh, JAG Corps uh, opportunities, I always knew I'd come back here to Arizona. So the, that begs the question, why did you want to serve in the JAG Corps when you wanted to get back to Arizona? Was it for the experience? Was it to, part of your wanderlust? Was it all of the above? Yeah, all, really all of the above. I mean, call us what you want, but we're a generation of lawyers that were raised on, you know, a few good men and, you know, the JAG, the TV show. And so you, you know, there, there was certainly a JAG lawyers kind of had a, a, a pretty prominent place in, in popular culture as you and I were growing up. But I also knew, you know, everybody that I talked to had said, yeah, I mean, you get great practical hands-on experience in terms of trial work right away. And, and that certainly turned out to be true. And, and then also there was, my full name is William M. Fishbach III. My grandfather, William M. Fishbach, was a, a doctor in the Navy in both World War II and the Korean War. My father, William M. Fishbach Jr., was an army officer during Vietnam. He didn't serve in Vietnam. He, he wanted to go, but he was in counterintelligence and they actually kept him here stateside to kind of monitor the anti-war movement, which by the way, that's totally verboten these days. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> different times, different norms. A lot of stuff went down in the 60s that would never fly these days. So, you know, my dad was, my grandfather's an officer in the Navy. My dad's an officer in the army. And you know, I, I wanted to kind of continue that tradition, you know, sitting on my wall here in my office uh, above my my whiskey bar there. I have my grandfather's commissioning certificate, my father's commissioning certificate and my commissioning certificate all framed together. Service kind of ran in the family, so to speak. So I think all those reasons really combined to make me say, hey, I, I want to take my turn at, at wearing the uniform, but I can do it in a way that I get I get some great experience and um Back then, I was like, who, maybe I'll get to go someplace cool like Bosnia or Korea. Or, you know, I, I had no, no concept of what was on the horizon. Let's okay. set the stage. So you graduated law school and with your MBA in 1999 from Tulane. You come into the Army JAG Corps in 2000. The Cold yeah. War has fallen. As you indicated, we're 
taking on missions like Bosnia and Kosovo to stop ethnic cleansing. And, and then on a sunshiny, beautiful autumn day here in Washington, D.C. on September 11th, 2001, planes went into buildings in New York and the Pentagon and one went down in Pennsylvania. And all of a sudden, all of our lives changed. And instead of going to Kosovo and Bosnia, as you indicated earlier, you went to such exotic places as Iraq and Afghanistan. So talk about your army career. Where did you go when you came on active duty? And then take us through, you know, those other tours. Sure, I'd be happy to. So for, for the army, I think still you you start it, you do some initial training at, at Fort Lee, Virginia, and then you go to the, the what we call the JAG school. And you do that, it's about, I don't know, six months or so. And then you go on to your first duty assignment. My first duty assignment was Korea, because back then that was like that was a hot spot, you know, as is as, as, as we all know, or at least as we all should know. The, the Korean War never ended. There was simply an armistice, theoretically still still ongoing. Korea just sounded like, a, again, the wanderlust. I'm like, what's an exotic location I can go? And, and I've been to Europe before. You know, Europe's great, but I mean, Korea, wow. I was a direct missionary. Well, put it this way, in terms of the pecking order, in terms of assignment choices, you're at the top of the totem pole because... The ROTC people and the FLET people, they have to go where the Army tells them to go. Whereas, you know, theoretically, if you're a direct commissionee, unless you actually show up on day one and, and, and get yourself sworn as, as an officer, you know, you hear stories of, of direct commissionees just not showing up. The personnel office for the Army, I think it's called, still called the PPTNO, they always give top priority to where the direct commissionees wanted to go. And when they looked at my list and Korea was at the top one, they thought I was crazy. They're like, they're, you don't want to go to like Germany or, you know, and I'm like, no, I just go you know, Korea. Korea is where I want to go. And they said, well, OK, we can make that happen for sure. And initially I was supposed to go up to Camp Red Cloud, which was uh, that's right there on the on the DMZ. But for whatever reason, at the last minute, I was reassigned to Seoul, Korea, which was great. I mean, living in Seoul, it's like living in New York City, except there's more light pollution, and, and most things are in um, Hangul, which is the written Korean language, although a lot of things are in English there, too. But, man, I had a ball in Seoul. Two of my closest friends there, who are still two of my closest friends today, they were both Korean-American Army officers who'd both gone to West Point. We all hit it off, and we would uh, we, we all bought motorcycles. We imported them from L.A., but because of the status of forces agreement, the SOFA, we were able to import them tax-free and duty-free. So we, we got these like high-end crash rocket motorcycles and just, you know, rode them all over the uh, South Korean countryside. It's a beautiful country. It just is. And they're delightful people. And again, Seoul's a, it is a metropolis. I mean, there's yeah. bars and restaurants and discos and so much to do. You would um, be surprised, Will. I was just there in April because my son was stationed at K-16. Yeah. And so we flew over and we stayed at the Dragon Hill Lodge, which that base it's weird because it's still there. There's very few army activities on it. Like a lot of the housing was turned over to Department of State Housing. So they live in a gated community. The commissary was probably two thirds of it had groceries in it. So, you know, you, you had whole aisles blocked off. But nonetheless, Korea, Seoul is right outside your gate. And of course, with uh, the public transportation system, you're able to get just about anywhere in Seoul or Korea if you wanted to go visit the, the countryside. We mostly, 
you know, we stayed there. We got down to K-16 a couple of times, saw the Doosan Bears play. But, yeah, my kids, my younger two kids that went with us, they fell in love with Seoul. They're like, yeah, we're going to come back here. It's a great town. And I, so I lived, so you're right, where the Dragon Hill Lodge is, that used to be a much bigger joint installation because all, all the services were there. All since now moved, I think, down to Osan for the most part. Yeah, I lived at, not too far outside the gate where the commissary was. I lived in, in an apartment I just, I love the country. I love the people. To this day, I love the food. A good Korean barbecue place is just, I'm a pig in mud. But yeah, I just love the the people. I love, I I love the country. Again, I still stay in touch with those two buddies of mine. But after that, it was like, okay, what's my next move? Having gone to one hardship assignment, again, I go to the uh, PPTNO and they're like, all right, where do you want to go now? Do you want to go to Italy? Do you want to go to, to, to Germany? Do you want to... And I said, no, I want to go to jump school and I want to go to Fort Bragg, which is now Fort Liberty. And again, they're, they're kind of scratching their heads saying, are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so I went to jump school en route, Fort Benning, Georgia, got my jump wings. And um, I get to Fort Bragg in uh, probably July, I want to say, 2001. Maybe earlier than that, maybe June. But I do a couple months in admin law and, you know, doing reports of survey and, you know, the, the, all those, those you know, thorny fiscal law questions that are tough to answer. And then an opportunity came up in operational law, which is JAGS, we know, is, you know, the rules of engagement, Geneva Conventions, you know, the, 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 the law of war, so to speak. And I was the assistant operational law attorney when 9-11 happened. Wow. And I remember it was... Uh, I believe it was a Tuesday, and because at Fort Bragg, I mean, the, the the Army Jags are are very PT conscious, but especially at Fort Bragg, when you're there with 18th Airborne Corps, the 82nd, the you know the special ops folks, you know, and so you know you were expected to PT every day and, and PT hard, but Tuesdays and Thursdays were usually kind of you know lighter days. So I after PT, I, I drove home to my apartment because I lived pretty close. You know, changed them back back then. You're wearing your starched uh, BDUs, changed into those, and don, don my maroon beret and heading into work. And I I met again assistant operational law attorney at 18th Airborne Corps. And the, the, there's a news story that like, hey, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center, and it's like, what's that? That's up, God, like that's crazy. Like it, the initial reaction I think to a lot of people who didn't see it happen. You think it was just like a a Cessna or something or or bingo, some amateur pilot lost control and and hit the World Trade Center. And I I get into work and I'm in my office and you you learn that, no, it wasn't a small plane. It was a jet. And then, oh, by the way, a second one. Then I remember at one point I'm sitting in my office, then Captain, now Colonel Rich Sutter uh, comes in and he says, they're gone. I, I said, what do you mean they're gone? He said, the World Trade Center is gone. And by then the towers had collapsed. The SJ at the time, Colonel David Hayden, he called us all together. And the first words out of his mouth, which I will never forget, was life as we know it is over. And he was right. It's never been the same since. Some ways, in big ways, obviously, but in little ways. You and I remember a time when you could go to the airport and, and your cousin's coming in from out of town. You could meet them at the gate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. You're never going to be the same way. But just the way we view the world and... It all changed that day, but but I knew being you know 18th Airborne Corps being what it is was I figured I'm going to be going somewhere soon, and so I remember going back that very day to my apartment and kind of you know getting get my TF50 out, and making sure everything was was packed and ready to go. As it happens, the first kind of the first wave that went over 
you know, we fought the war initially from Uzbekistan, from an air base called Karshi Khanabat, Uzbekistan, which was an old Soviet air base. You know, we've all heard the, the, the ditty of amateurs talk tactics, experts talk logistics. And, and there's a lot to be said for that. The, the benefit that K2 afforded was, you know, Uzbekistan is directly north of Afghanistan. K2 had an airfield that could accommodate C-17s and C-130s. There was a railhead fairly nearby. So you, you could get stuff there fairly easily, either via railhead or, or cargo or cargo trucks, cargo planes and cargo trucks. Then you could ship them down to Afghanistan, either via C-130. By then we had we got a hold of Bagram pretty quickly. And then, um, or, or you could put them on long trucks, send them down through Masri Sharif. And you probably had about a, a 70% success rate of stuff going through, but, but it was a way to get it done. We fought the war from Uzbekistan initially. Eventually, 10th Mountain came in and put their flag there. The, the SF guys were there. There was a Spectre squadron. That's the old AC-130, you know, flying howitzer, basically, which th- those yeah. things are incredibly deadly. They will point the, the cannon at a fixed point and then lock the plane into just this circular mode. And you can just lay hellfire on a three by three foot patch of ground with impunity from 10,000 feet. And it, it's just deadly accurate. The uh, 18th Airborne Corps sends its uh, initially one of its logistics groups out there, which is a, a brigade sized element. Initially, my boss went over with a legal assistance attorney. And I remember coming into the I can't remember what they called it there at 18th Airborne Corps, but the kind of the skiff or whatever, the you know, the top secret thing. So I'm, I'm there to check email that morning because now I'm still the assistant operational on attorney. And I'm I'm going through the emails from the night before. And I'm able to deduce that my boss had been fired essentially because he had angered the commander of the fifth special forces group, uh, Colonel Mulholland. And you know what happens in the army when your boss gets the heave ho. You, you go in his or her spot. And to be fair, I don't think my boss did anything wrong by any stretch of the imagination. He, he did not. There was a kind of a, a conflict there that he had with Colonel Mulholland. And, and you know, back back then when the commander of a fifth group says, I want this guy out of here, the big army is kind of powerless to stop it. So come late November on what was quite literally a dark and stormy night, I, I got aboard a, a C-17 and I, I headed out to K2 Uzbekistan. And as part of that, although I hung my hat in Uzbekistan, I would go down to Afghanistan frequently because there just weren't a lot of lawyers in theater. I mean, if somebody had to go down there and write wills for soldiers, that was me. That kind of stuff, I loved that. That was just so much fun. And and, and the war was different back then. I, I went to Kabul one day with, with some of the Special Forces guys. I'm there shopping on the streets of Kabul, and I'm wearing, and this is probably February of 2002, I'm wearing jeans, uh, a T-shirt, and a North Face jacket. And I've got a 9 millimeter pistol underneath. I liked Uzbekistan quite a bit, too. I, I, there's a lot of history in Uzbekistan, a lot, a lot of old you know, biblical sites, and Samarkand, and, and Tashkent, or just these old ancient cities that, that lie along the old Silk Road. And um, uh, But they're also modern. I mean, you, you could go yeah. to... Five star restaurant and a, and a discotheque in, in Tashkent, if you wanted to. Uh, so I enjoyed doing that. I won't say the legal work there was that fascinating. I, I for the longest time there was a big force cap there in Bagram b- because the idea was you wanted to keep a small conventional footprint, and, and for the most part the work was done by the special operations folks and then their allies out there and in, in, in kind of some of the local tribes and whatnot. That later changed significantly, but the big army presence for a long time, it just wasn't really there until I was getting ready to leave. And just as I was getting ready to leave, which was in, I think, August of 02, 
that's when I think 18th Airborne Corps brought its its flag there. And and that was the transition from, I, I would call it a special operations driven mission to more of kind of a conventional army driven mission. But but that's when I left. Get back to 18th Airborne Corps and I've been promised a trial council position, which as we all know, the trial council is the company command of the JAG-4. And I, I'm doing that for about two weeks as a trial council, 18th Airborne Corps. And then I'm told, bad news. There's a slot that we need to fill at trial defense service at the 82nd Airborne Division, and you have to fill it. Something that happened where the trial defense service at the 82nd somehow got dibs on their next person, whoever it was. It's like the, the they had the first draft there. And at that point, the TDS office was hit, headed up, then major, now retired Colonel Martha Foss, who was my field recruiting officer in the in, during law school. And and she got she said, all right, Martha, you get your top pick. Who is it? And she said, Fishbach. And hmm. and I said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> here, here I am. I've, I've got the brass ring of, of the Army JAG Corps. I'm a trial counsel at 18th Airborne Corps. And now I'm going to trial defense service. I love the fact I was going to the 82nd. That was great. But um, I kind of made a promise to myself, okay, big army, you're going to regret this. <laughs> Two years at the 82nd trial defense service, I, I scored four acquittals, panel acquittals, which, um, yeah, that's the best way to get back at, at big army when they when they do that to you, is, is you beat them in the courtroom. To say nothing of the, you know, just probably the, the deals that I negotiated that were very one-sided in my, my client's favor. But, but but that's what you did as a defense attorney. Being a defense, a criminal defense attorney is a it is a noble cause. Be it in the army or out, because you're not so much defending, you're defending an individual and your your ethical duty is to that individual client, but you're protecting a system. It's a system that that presumes innocence, that keeps police and prosecutors accountable that affords due process. And you want that system there, God forbid you or I ever get get. And so anytime anybody comes to me and says, you know, criminal defense attorneys are the scum of the earth, I say, they are, they are the unsung heroes of the legal profession. I just form. listened to a podcast yesterday. It's about the mob, but they interviewed a uh, long-term, he's 80-some years old. He's done a lot of mob defense. And he's the, the title of the show was uh, Liberty's Last Champion. And the guy said, you know, I'm the last barrier that the waves of the government have to get through to get to a person. So I thought that was a pretty interesting and apropos uh, description of a defense counsel. No, it, it, it's true. And, you know, you um, you got to be scrappy. You, you learn a lot more, I think, as a on the defense side about being a trial attorney. Being a trial counsel is, is, a, is a whole other level of responsibilities, which is, yeah, you've got to be, you know, effective in the courtroom, but... You know, you've got to learn how to maintain the trust of those those company commanders and those battalion commanders and those brigade commanders. You have to understand the kind of the politics that, that's going on behind the scenes. And, you know, being a defense attorney is admittedly it's simple in, in the fact that the focus is very narrow, but it's pound for pound. It's probably the, the best way to learn what I would call courtroom skills, especially at the 82nd there. I mean, there was no shortage of of things going on, because not not only would we defend soldiers in the 82nd Airborne Division, but also soldiers in 18th Airborne Corps and the Corps Support Command and, and the two, back then there were two special forces groups there. So the, the 82nd Defense, 82nd Airborne Defense was great. Uh, learned a ton there. Then it's time to move again, and the Army says, uh, all right, now you've done it all. 
And I remember they offered me this, this peachy job at a, it wasn't Vincenza, but it was like, it was like some small army depot on the Italian Riviera where they had to have a Jag. It was the boondoggle of all boondoggles. And they were like, you've earned this, you can have it. You can live on the Italian Riviera for the next two years. No, I'd rather go to the 101st year. And, uh, and I did. I went there, went to air assault school. I also at one point went through, went through Pathfinder school there too. And I was trial counsel there, first for the 1st Brigade and then later for the entire division. And then that's when the 101st goes back for its second rotation to Iraq, which is 2005. I had two roles there. One was to do what's called, not, not so much rule of law, but I, I always kind of likened myself, SJA back then, Colonel Pam Stahl, I, I always kind of referred to me as her queen, not not in the not not in the sense that some of you people with filthy minds are thinking, but in terms of the chessboard, the piece with the most mobility is the queen. And Colonel Stahl knew she could send me anywhere to do anything. And, and so one week it would be like, oh hey, there's some issues with the judges up in Talafra, go deal with it. Oh, there's issue with the cops up in Mosul, go deal with it. Oh, some some civil affairs went went, went bonkers up in. Or Beal, go down and interview the general in charge of civil affairs in Baghdad. So I, I, I moved around a lot, quite a bit. Thank, and I am so grateful Colonel Stahl had so much faith in me. But I was also the lead trial counsel for the division. And then everybody remembers the um, Abu Ghraib courts martial, uh, that, that situation during Iraq. When I was at Fort Bragg at the 82nd there, the two TDS attorneys on either side of my office, one of them had... Charles Grainer, who was like the ringleader, so to speak, as his client. And then the other one had as her client, the um, Liddy England, the female, the one with the, the the famous cigarette hanging out of her mouth photograph. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, when am I going to get a high profile case someday? And I, I remember being kind of down about it. Like, gosh, I'd love to have a high profile case. Well, all I had to do was wait because uh, we're there in the 101st a couple of years later with Fort Campbell from, from Fort Campbell. There were two big cases. One of them was the what we call the Iron Triangle murders, which was where some soldiers from the 3rd Brigade of the 101st had uh, captured some detainees and then decided that they those detainees needed some killing and uh, cut the zip ties, shot them, and then cooked up a story that they were shot while trying to escape. That that, that was of, of some notoriety because the brigade commander for that unit was a gentleman by the name of Colonel Michael Steele, which for those of us that have either read Black Hawk Down or seen the movie or done both, Colonel Michael Steele was Captain Michael Steele, the Ranger Company commander during the Battle of Mogadishu. And, and he was, and, and he had allegedly, and to be fair to Colonel Steele, he always denied this, but he had allegedly given rules of engagement verbally to, to the unit before the operation called Operation Iron Triangle. The rules of engagement supposedly were kill all military aged males on the objective, which that, that's um, probably not the best parameters you're going to give to an 18 year old infantry soldier. And so, unfortunately, you know, Colonel Steele, although I, I don't think that had anything to do with what eventually happened that day, uh, unfortunately, it, it, it you know, probably resulted in, in what would have been probably a pretty amazing career for him as a, as a general officer, because he was being groomed for that. So there was that. Then there's the what we call the Mamadia massacre, which was um, soldiers in the 2nd Brigade raped a 14-year-old Iraqi girl, killed her, killed her sister, killed her parents, then set the girl's body on fire to make it appear as though it was um, an act of sectarian violence. That's the one that always will kind of, for me, will always be the high mark in terms of just... Yeah, so you you had you had plenty of uh, you had plenty of big cases to deal with over there. I did. Then. I, I, did. I, I came back with nine murder cases in tow from Iraq, and, and we got convictions in every one. 
One got overturned on appeal by CAF, and it was an odd, the defense had requested a lesser included instruction of uh, involuntary manslaughter or negligent homicide. We argued against it. And back then, the manual for courts martial said negligent homicide was a lesser included offense of premeditated murder. So the judge said, fine, I'll give the instruction. I, I think the jury kind of part of a compromise verdict convicted on the negligent homicide goes up to CAF and CAF says, well, notwithstanding the fact that the manual for courts martial says it's a lesser included offense, it's not. That that was overturned. Well, it certainly wasn't anything we did. It was we opposed the instruction and um but but you know what? Good for him. Good good for him and good for his attorneys for finding finding a way to 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 represent their client and do the best they could for him. And, and that's the way it should be. So well just to move us along. So you um you end up coming back, you did one last tour in DC. Yeah, I went to um, the Defense Appellate Division, and uh, and I know we're short on time, but I met my wife in Iraq, too, who she was an Army nurse. Wow. I, I'd see her around the mess hall and be like, oh, who's that, who's that tall, beautiful brunette over there? And I could tell by virtue of her her shoulder patch that she was at the hospital. So there at Cobb Spiker outside of Decrete. And so um, and I was I spent most of my time there on Spiker when I wasn't traveling. So I always made a lot of excuses to hang around the hospital. And then one day we had a case out of the aviation brigade where a soldier had gotten drunk and flipped a Humvee and ejected the passenger and severed the passenger's spine. Ouch. And it turned out that my my then future wife was had treated both uh, the driver and the passenger. I court-martialed the passenger, the driver, but that's how I got to meet her. And then uh, the thing I always tell people is uh, my wife, she was covered in blood on our first date, literally, because <laughs> they, they had just finished saving the life of an insurgent who had, he had, he had gotten in a, uh, an engagement. He'd gotten an engagement with special forces. He showed up to the hospital missing his right arm. It had been sheared off by the 30 millimeter chain gun on an Apache. So he's got no ID. He's got no right arm. So they, you know, they, they called him lefty, which, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's distasteful. I get it, but you know, being the United States army, we saved lefty's life. And we did sure. it by going every ounce of O blood that day on the base, which is the universal blood. And when we ran out, soldiers donated blood. And, you know, that has always to me been a testament to the leadership, leadership at its best by the U.S. Armed Forces is, is taking blood that could have saved the life of a soldier tomorrow. We're going to use it to save the life of our enemy today. And that just speaks volumes about us as a armed forces, as a culture. Anyway, D.C. Defense Appellate Division, learn my appellate, get my appellate sea legs, so to speak. By then, I'm just like, all right, I only plan to be here for three years, guys. <laughs> now I'm coming yeah. up on nine. Time to sail the way to other shores and drop my resignation paperwork. And, you know, back then you had to basically, if you didn't time your resignation just right, you were going to get you were gonna caught, up, caught up again on the next deployment. As it happens, my last day on active duty was September 30th of 2008, which is probably the worst month in the history of the universe to leave government employment was September of 2008. Because, you know, the, the the Great Recession is just gaining steam. And I think either, yeah. it's either Bear Stern or Lehman Brothers went, went down that month. I started working at a small insurance defense firm in kind of the, the more rural part of Arizona because I wanted to like, you know, mountain bike all summer and snowboard all winter. I did that for a year. But I wanted to get back to the to Phoenix, and so I made my way here to the law firm of Tiffany and Bosco, which is where I currently am. I've been here for 
14 years. Um, I'm an equity partner here, which is to say that I kind of run my own shop within the firm, basically. The way we do it here is each equity partner runs their own profit center. And look, we're all one firm. We have one board of directors, one E&O policy, yeah. one managing partner. But financially, we break it down in economic silos with each equity partner at the top. And as some people say, it's eat what you kill, which I find that to be kind of a crass way to put it. I, I just prefer to consider that it's an objective system where you know, you're rewarded if you work hard and, and you, you keep revenue high and expenses low, and you're, you're not rewarded if you, if you don't do those things. So right now I've got six, warriors that work, six lawyers that work directly for me, as well as four paralegals. And we do the, the gamut of civil commercial litigation. I, when people say, what kind of law do you practice? I'm like, what kind of law don't I practice? I, I yeah, mean, I want to touch on that, Will, because you know, a couple of unusual things with you is one, you left and you've been with, we've been with one firm. You know, it's not uncommon for lawyers leaving the service to to do something for a few years, get that itch to move again, move on. But you've been there over 14 years. So one, that's unusual. And two, I was looking at from your LinkedIn about the the areas that you've practiced in and had success, which 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 you were just talking about is all over the place. You know, showing that uh, you know you can learn new tricks, despite, you know, being out of school for a while. I mean, I saw everything from easements, uh, property law, real estate law, to mechanics liens. You're kind Medical of all over the place. Wrongful death. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I have a defamation. And I credit the JAG over that because, you know, as a JAG, especially during our deployments, it's like you kind of had to be able to figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. you, you had to be quick on your feet. And if you didn't know something, you, you better learn it. When you do that as a JAG, it kind of gives you kind of a, maybe I don't want to say fearlessness because that's usually not a good thing, but because you should always have a healthy, healthy fear of something, but you're willing to take on more risks. Uh, a couple of years ago, somebody came to me and said, Hey, I think I've got a good patent infringement case. I said, I'm gay. You know, why not? It looked good. And to be fair, we settled the case for a lot of money and, and I did well on it, but Boy, oh boy, did I get a crash course in patent infringement law. You want to talk about an area of the law where up is down and down is up, it's patents. But being a JAG kind of made me like that, where I'm like, okay, this seems interesting. And for better or worse, I I think more for the better, I've gotten a reputation here in town as somebody that'll take the, the crazy cases. And I, I have lots of regular kind of what you might call boring commercial cases that are hourly, and and those keep the lights on. And, and fortunately, I've got a team of lawyers now that, that can do a lot of the work there. And, and I, I sometimes joke and say, look, I'm just kind of the show pony, though. I, I show up for the depositions, the trials, and the, and the you know the big moments where you need somebody with those kind of well-ingrained trial attorney skills. But, but everything else, I'll leave up to my team. So how much of that, leaving it up to your team, the delegation of duties or the trust that you place in, how much of that was, was driven or gained from your Army JAG experience? So much of it, you know, you probably don't realize just how much leadership you learn in the JAG Corps until you, you're, you're called on to go out in the world and be a leader, which is when you're the SJA, that's probably, you know, that that's kind of the, or, or higher, that's kind of the pinnacle of JAG Corps leadership. But look, it's, it's nothing like what I do now, which is I'm responsible for the care and feeding uh, at any given time, 10 or 11 people, which means I have to make sure their salaries are paid, their health care is taken care of, you know, that they're, I'm, I'm giving them time off when they have a new baby. I'm ma making sure that, you know, they're, they're not burning out. 
I'm maintaining their, their professional development. On top of having a productive practice to enable you to have the funds to do all of that. Right. My job is, is also to get the business in the door because I don't have a lot of what I would call institutional clients, nor do I know that I'd want to. I like getting the call from a referral source saying, well, I've got, I've got a big one for you. You know, I'm all ears. Let's talk about it. I've got a meeting later today over a, let's just say that it involves a lot of real estate, a $75,000 engagement ring and some infidelity. And, and that's the kind of thing that that's why I'm here. I love those cases, but I, I've had lots of, lots of just fun cases. At one point I, I deposed Elon Musk. You talk about probably the bet, the, the funnest two and a half hours <laughs> as a litigator what was matching wits with Elon Musk, who I respect so much, by the way. But, you know, as a deponent, he's a handful. The, the case is um, Tesla v. Trip. There's actually a published opinion out of it, out of the District of Nevada. There's bits and pieces of the, the deposition out there of the unsealed portion on Pacer. You know, unfortunately, that happened just before COVID hit. And whatever good publicity I might have gotten out of that was lost in the, the COVID shuffle. But that was a, it was a bit of a mixed bag. We lost on the defamation counts against Tesla by virtue of things Busk had said. But we also beat at summary judgment a uh, like Tesla had this crazy $168 million trade secrets damages claim that we beat at summary judgment. I think the, the press couched it as Tesla winning, but I'm like, I'm in terms of raw dollars, I'm pretty sure I got the, the 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 better victory there. If I if I can wipe out a hundred sixty eight million dollar damages claim at summary judgment, I'll I'll uh, I'll call that one a win. But yeah, it's uh, I love doing what I do, and people always say that to me: is you can just tell you're happy as a lawyer. I say you're damn right I am. But there was there was times it was hard. There were times there's times of self doubt. Times where you just kind of want to give up. And um, yeah, let's and, talk about that because that's something that's the reason why. I started this podcast is that self-doubt and it, and judge advocates, especially those who have been institutionalized like Brooksy and Shawshank Redemption, you know, are coming out and, hey, look, I've been doing army law. I've been doing federal government law, administrative law, which, you know, people tell you compliance law. We all have those identity and confidence problems, some more than others. Did you have those at the beginning? Did you feel like an imposter or were those when you shifted focus in different legal areas? When did you experience that lack of confidence or self-doubt? Well, right out of the box. I mean, you know, on the one hand, if somebody said, go, go depose this person and kind of elicit the following bits and pieces of information, easy, easy peasy. I remember one of the first assignments I received at that, because I did one year at that small firm before I came to Tiffany and Bosco. The managing partner said, go draft a motion for summary judgment. And I'm like, a motion for summary? What? Like, like this, I hadn't thought about that stuff since law school. Is a JAG coming out, on the one hand, you are way ahead of your peers in some skill sets. In others, not so much. And, and, and the trick is to kind of quickly cure that imbalance. You're probably ahead of your peers in things that are very difficult to teach, like effective cross-examination, communication, kind of just be, being able to get creative in terms of solutions. But but yeah, you're going to have to bone up on the rules of civil procedure. You, you know, you're, you're going to have to, to relearn, remind yourself exactly what an Article 9 secure transaction is. But it's, it's doable. It's absolutely doable if you want to get it done. Probably the hardest part is, I know for me, I took a bit of a pay cut. If only because, you heard I was an eight or nine year lawyer, but 
nobody knew what to quite do with me. They're like, well, he, he has all this experience, but does it really matter? And the only reason I was able to get into Tiffany and Bosco is I had impressed one of the partners here, wonderful gentleman by the name of Lenmark, who's now retired, and another gentleman named Bill Simon, who's unfortunately no longer with us. But Bill Simon and Lenmark were opposing counsel in a case I had, that small law firm, and I showed them what I could do. And so when I saw an ad in the Maricopa County Bar Journal for a, a position here, I, I remember I called up Len. I said, Len, I want this job. And he said, you're going to get it because they had seen me in action. You know, y- your best referral sources, quite honestly, are sometimes your adversaries. The, the people that, that see that you know what you're doing, those are the people that are going to send you a big case. Because, you know, when you refer a case out, you want to send it to somebody you know is not going to screw it up because your your credibility is on the line there. And so I, one of the first things you learn is, your, your, your adversary today can be your referral source tomorrow and vice versa. I, I always, you know, once my the blood stopped boiling, you made your peace, you take your opponent out to lunch <laughs> and you break bread with them and, and you make them an ally. But in terms of the confidence, you just you just got to get out there and do it. And um, I think uh, probably the hardest part may be because to be fair, we, we, we're fairly well paid as, as officers and especially once you get a couple of years in. And if you got a, a family, that's hard to do. But sometimes you have to take a step back if you're going to make a giant leap forward. And you'll get there. I know I did. But it, it, you got to be patient and you got to be willing to take some risks. And, and that's not for everybody. And I get it. If some folks in the JAG, you know, get out of the JAG core and maybe start keep working in, in the government sector, that's their prerogative. You know, they, they're not unworthy or anything like that. We, we yeah. need good lords in those areas. But for me, because of just how I'm built, I, I kind of had to go for the the crazy option, which was, yeah, I'm going to go to this firm where it's, you know, it's eat what you kill. And again, I hate that phrase, but it's there's some truth to it. And I love it. You know, I know that, yeah, just what you said, you know, what do I do with this lawyer? I mean, I, tons of experience doing all this stuff, but how does that, that that doesn't look like me. And and I find in that in my own experience that you don't even get bites because you don't look like them. Yeah, you may not get bites from people who said, hey, we'll take a look at you. And I got it. There's a lot of other qualified lawyers out there. But I want to also touch on before we go, you do a lot of work with nonprofits and the Arizona Bar, don't you? Talk about that as far as you know your motivation and what you get from that. I'm a big believer in, you know, people call them these corporate personality tests. No, they're, they're assessments. And there's an assessment out there called a DISC assessment. I, I am a high D on the DISC assessment, which is to say that I, I lead through dominance, but I'm also inherent in my leadership style is a desire to help others. And, and so I enjoy going out, doing things in the community that benefit others. So one, I'm, I'm the vice chair of my zoning committee here in, in, in this part of Phoenix, which is, um, I'm in admittedly the kind of the, the ritzier part of Phoenix. So if anybody wants to build or rezone something in this neighborhood, they have to go through my committee to do it, which you get to have a say in how your community develops. But you also get to meet a lot of developers and, and, and zoning lawyers who are, again, are all potential clients or referral sources in the future. I'm on the rules committee of the state bar, and I'm, I'm fine. Of, I do a lot of the CLE work for that committee, and it's fun because you get to kind of put together panels of top lawyers and top judges and it's almost like you get to be like a, a talk show host <laughs> and you just get to ask them questions and, and you listen to legal minds that are far superior to my own and, and just say, well, Mr. Chief Justice, what do you think about this? And, and I can't tell you how, how enjoyable that's been to, 
just get to learn from those folks who, who again, are all just incredible attorneys and, and jurists. That's a lot of fun. So this last summer, I got to go out and Four days of teaching for the state bar over in Coronado Island at San Diego, the, the Dell there. <laughs> you, you know the place. I had the misfortune, I say it with air quotes, of living in Coronado twice. So it's, it's, a, it's a lovely place. In fact, so I taught for three days, and then one day I was on the ethics panel, and it was led by a, a former Army Jack and Shing, who is now a, a professor at ASU Law School. And it was actually a, a veteran panel, which was really great. So I do that, but my, my, my real passion is I'm the board chair of the Goodwill of Central and Northern Arizona. Goodwills are territorial. Our Goodwill is all of Arizona except for Tucson. And then we have a small, we acquired through merger, a small satellite territory in Maryland. For those of you that are in D.C. or Baltimore, the Goodwill in Frederick, Maryland is part of the Goodwill here in Arizona. And so why that is, that's a long story, but... But we're the biggest goodwill in the world, and I, you know, and it's public. It's a matter of public record that we, we do hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue every year by monetizing things people gave us for free. The purpose behind that is job opportunities, vocational opportunities. We just opened up an adult high school for people to get their high school diploma if they dropped out, as opposed to a GED. We just opened up a micro school for at-risk youth. A micro school is a new educational concept where you probably take 10 kids in a room and it's largely software driven, but it's kind of the the, the, the forefront of, of education right now. We have a veteran center there, there in Frederick that we're really proud of. We're going to do one here in, in Phoenix, but we fund all those mission things through thrift retail, which is people drop off their clothes and their furniture and, and other things and we sell them. And we don't sell them in our stores. We we sell them overseas, or we sell. We find it sometimes we'll get a rare collectible. Uh, we'll sell it a lot online. Not long ago, somebody donated, which to the naked eye appeared to be a ratty old baseball covered with with uh, chicken scratch handwriting on it. It's actually a baseball signed by the entire 1927 New York Yankees spring training team, to to include Lou Gehrig. <laughs> Yeah. And we went out, had it authenticated. And again, that type of stuff shows up all the time. You know, wow. grandpa dies, grandma dies. We get a box of stuff and you'd be amazed what's in there. Sometimes there's crazy. I mean, I've seen Nazi stamps show up. I've seen Confederate money show up. And those things we have to destroy. To be fair, there might be somebody out there that might buy that stuff, but we're not going to sell that stuff. We just destroy it. But we get probably a diamond a day. We get a couple of Rolexes a year and it's just, it just shows up. So I, I love doing that. And it, it, as a leader, it, it just kind of really, you know, bakes my cookies because I love knowing we run a business that's designed to help other people be the best version of themselves. And that that means a lot to me. And we just started a sister company called Thrive, which I'm also the board chair of, which is going to do some work, basically raising money for nonprofit causes through for-profit business lines to include real estate. And in this case, a coffee. We just started a coffee company called Noble Ground. We have a kiosk now in the Suns Arena. We're going to have probably, a, we hope to have four coffee shops here in, in Arizona in the next year. The profit margins on coffee are really good. And so we operate Thrive as a taxable not-for-profit, which I know sounds odd, but you can be a non-profit, but still have a business line that by virtue exactly. of is yeah. taxable. So that's what Thrive does. And then the money from Thrive either goes back to Goodwill or, or other other causes. And so, so in those positions, I get to one, learn, learn what it means to be 
to be the client on the receiving end of that bill. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, yeah. In my capacity as board chair, I've hired outside law firms to do like investigations and things like that. And then I get those bills and I'm like, you know, good God, how did, how did you guys run up a $50,000 bill <laughs> in, in 30 days? But you learn what it's like to be the client. And we're, we're, we're very excited about what the future holds there. And we might even have some international opportunities here through Goodwill and Thrive and uh, really more through Thrive, to be honest. But, but it, it's just a, a joy to be able to give back to the community like that. And it helps you as a lawyer because you get out there in front of people, in front of the you know, the people that you want as your clients. So I would say for those of you getting out, I know this is why I'm here, is just give advice. Don't be afraid to take risks and get involved in the community. Kind of find something you're passionate about. And it might be might be kids, it might be homelessness, it might be animals. And go find an organization that, that, that does that and knock on their door and say, you know what, I'd love to give you 10 hours a month of my time. You're going to love what you do. Yeah. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna feel better as a human being for taking the time to go out there and, and help help others get, get through it because nobody does it alone. And when somebody says to me and says, oh, I did this all on my own, I say shenanigans. Yeah. Nobody does it on their own. Everybody has mentors and helpers and friends. And you know, our job, if we have the good fortune to be successful, our job is to go out there and help others. And then what you tell them is when they say, how can I ever repay you? I say, you don't repay me. Someday you're in my position and you help somebody else. Yeah, pay it forward. That's what's Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. I've got some editing in my future to get us down to an hour. And that's, <laughs> that's not a problem. But, you know, looking at your career, admittedly, it shows, you know, even if some kid gets a hold of this recording, hey, it, it's okay not to peak in high school or even college. You know, I'm looking at you and listening to you, a guy who, just had a thirst for knowledge and experience. And uh, it's taken you all over the world, not the world you thought you would be seeing, but you took advantage of those opportunities. You tried different things. And, and the other part of the leadership that I thought was important was, you know, referring to when your boss got fired of, of that attitude of next man up, which I, or next person up, which drives the attitude of, okay, you know, whatever area of law you're thinking about, you can learn it. And that's something that I'm, you know, I'm learning again right now, but you you did a little bit of SJ work. You did trial defense. You did prosecution. You did appellate defense, then out doing everything under the sun, which I think demonstrates our flexibility and adaptability in a JAG Corps. And, you know, your work on the nonprofit and the zoning and that all that giving back that selfless service that one of the core tenants of the Army you know, none of us really sign up to be thanked for our service on Veterans Day or those kind of holidays. But some of that you can see some of those traits that you were instilled in you that you're still living by. Well, I, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll, I'll maybe just kind of just to give a kind of a parting thought here or a parting soundbite to, to folks who are in the JAG who are getting out is you have a better skill set than you probably realize. And you just need to figure that out. And unfortunately, we don't do a good job in the military, the JAG Corps in general, in terms of kind of helping people sort that out. There's an old movie with uh, Vince Vaughn and John Farvo called uh, Swingers. And there's a line in there where the Vince Vaughn character is saying to John Farvo, because he's down on his luck and his girlfriend dumped him. And, and Vince Vaughn says, you're so money and you don't even know it. To all you judge advocates out there who are looking to get out, you're so money and you don't even know it. You have skills 
that that are so much so better developed than your peers, and you just have to harness them and, and transform them in, into success. It doesn't mean you're not going to stumble and fall along the way. You will count on it, but it yeah. can be done. And I tell you, I don't think I should even try to top a parting quote from Vince Vaughn. So I think <laughs> I'm going to leave it right there. Airborne, sir. <laughs> thank you so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Will. Take care, man. Good seeing you. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.